I am Patrick with David, your host of ITM, and today we're going to have another Michael Francisi interview, except this one's going to be untold stories of the mafia that he hasn't shared in the past before. So it's good to see you again, Michael. Good crowd, huh? Yes. Good crowd. They've been looking forward to spending some time with you. You know, we're talking to back. I'm like, Michael, what do we talk about that we haven't already talked about? <laughs> How many guys have seen the interview, by the way? Anybody seen the interview? So that's the challenge. Few people. But, yeah, yeah, few people have seen the interview. So why don't we take in a complete different direction today, uh, you and I. Um, one, power plays that maybe were, you know, pulled on you. And probably the stories I wouldn't mind if we can get into is maybe early on when you're coming up, somebody that was able to do a power play on you that you were kind of sitting there saying, wow, I can't believe that guy actually pulled it off on me. That helped you learn to become better yourself in the street. And then later on, we can talk about reading people in rooms, in negotiation rooms. Many of the guys here sit with investors, competitors, buyers, sellers, vendors, partners. How do you read the room? Who's really the decision maker? Who's the EF button? Who's not? But having said that, let's go back to power plays. So coming up in the streets of New York, I mean, these are the times of the 80s. Right. These are tough times. These are competitive times. These are times that's about territory. You've got to be able to stand up. And in our world, worst thing that can happen to you is go out of business. In your world, worst thing that can happen to you is you're out of life. It's that's a complete right. different ballgame, right? That's you could right. get killed. So what were some stories or examples you had of power plate played against you and power plays that you played against somebody else that was in a more stronger position than you were? You know, early on, I got a, a great education. You know, that's a, that could be a very treacherous life. Obviously, people, you know that. And uh, when I was a young recruit, recruit meaning um, I had just been proposed into the life and I now had to prove myself to get my stripes. So you had to do anything and everything you were told to do. And at the time, I was just feeling my way. I, I had gotten in trouble. I had a few indictments, so I, was, I had really gone through it. And I had a couple of businesses going. I had a, a market, you know, like a, a market where you have all different stations. You got meat, you got fish, you got the whole thing. So um, we had a meat division there. And Paul Castellano, who was the boss of the uh, Gambino family at the time, he had a lot of people involved in the chicken business. He's a wholesale chicken guy. So one of his uh, relatives was selling me chickens. We had to buy from him because he was the boss. Legit business. It was legit, yeah. Okay. I, I think so. So, so uh, anyhow, I was buying all my chickens from him. It's Memorial Day weekend. The anniversary is actually coming up. And uh, I buy a load of chickens for him, and I'm selling them to people. We're wholesaling them, giving them away. Memorial Day weekend, beautiful weekend. So we sell to this one woman. On Tuesday, she comes back, and she said, you sold me bad chickens. I says, what do you mean? Well, they were all filled with maggots. Now, they were only in my freezer for a day, right? So it couldn't have been us. So I said, I'll take them back. I gave it back the money the whole bit. So I call up Paulie's guy, and I said, listen, I'm not going to pay for these chickens because there was something wrong with them. There was maggots. He said, no, you're going to pay me for the chickens. I said, no, I'm not going to pay you. We go back and forth. He starts cussing me out. I start cussing him out and so on and so forth. He says, you know who I am? I said, I don't care who you are. You know, I'm a young, brash guy at that time. And I hang up the phone on him. Next thing you know, I get a call from my boss at the time. Uh, he was a cop regime. And, and uh, he says, get downtown right away. I got to see you. So I jump on my car. I go downtown. I go to, uh, you know, downtown Brooklyn. I said, what's the problem? 
Did you have an argument with somebody on the phone? I said, yeah. I said, over these chickens, and I explained the story to him. He said, do you realize who that guy was? And I said, I know, but he still sold me bad chickens. Do I have to pay, you know? So uh, he said, you're in a lot of trouble. That's Paul Castellano's nephew. It got back to Paulie. He's the boss of the Gambino family. You got a lot of trouble here. You're not supposed to get out of, out of control with a guy like that. You always keep your temper. So I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to have a sit down with him. He says, but here's the deal. When we get to that table, you don't open your mouth. I don't care what Paulie says. I don't care what he accuses you of. I don't care what names he calls you. You don't open your mouth and you don't answer unless we answer for you or we tell you to answer. That's the rules. I said, hey, you got it. Whatever how, I got how old to do, you I saved my life. I was uh, 23. 23. 23 years old. So we get to the meeting, and I'm getting abused. Uh, Pat, he's abused. He's calling me all sorts of names. You know who I am. Who do you think you are? I know who your father is, but that doesn't give you a right to talk to my nephew like that. On and on and on and on and on. And I'm not answering. They're answering for me, right? So the bottom line is, he says, do you want to buy chickens for me anymore? And I looked at my guy, I said, can I answer? He said, answer. I said, no, I don't want to buy chickens from you. I mean, you would have thought this was like a, the biggest deal in the world, right? A couple of pounds of chickens, it was always over that. So, but you know, in that world, everything is very technical. They make a mountain out of a molehill. And you know, the thing, Patrick, at that meeting, what, was, what happened at these sit-downs, the old timers were very technical. For instance, rules of a sit-down. Let's make you and I, you and I are made guys. We're having an argument. You're lying through your teeth. Lying, every other word is a lie. If I call you a liar, I lose the argument automatically. If I get upset with you and lose my temper, I lose the, the argument automatically. You got to know how to keep your mouth shut. You got to be able to outsmart that person, right? And don't let him make you fall into a trap. Because a lot of times, if an old timer was wrong, he's trying to get you into a trap. So on technicalities, you lose. So I'm starting to figure this out here. So I said, look, I don't want to buy chickens from you anymore. I said, but I'm going to do whatever my boss tells me to do. If he tells me to buy them, I'm going to buy them. I said, I'm a, I'm a good soldier in that regard. Back and forth, back and forth. I took all the abuse. And uh, at the end of the day, I didn't have to pay him for the chickens, but I had to continue buying chickens from him. That was the compromise, right? So now I get in the car and um, they turn around and... Uh, he starts yelling at me for a minute, and then all of a sudden, everything is silent. There's the boss and my cop regime, and they crack up laughing like this was the biggest, funniest thing. He said, you, Paulie, I said, I've never seen Paulie get so mad over chickens. He said, you happen to do that, blah, 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 and they were all, we all had a good time over it. But what I learned at that point, I learned just about these technicalities and how you got to keep your head in a meeting like that. You got to learn to outsmart people. You got to be able to read the room. You know, I learned that Whenever I went into a meeting like this, I tried to learn the, the personality, the character of the person I was up against. John Gotti, for instance. You can never let John Gotti think that you won an argument. His ego wouldn't allow it. So you had to figure out a way to outsmart him to make him think he won, but you actually got what you want. And when you can master that art, you'll do pretty good. And you know, whatever I did in my whole life, I was able to apply that to business in life now. So uh, that was my first, but you know, they got over me a little bit, but we kind of compromised, but uh, it was a big lesson for me because that was my first major sit down against a major guy. So Michael, let me ask you this. So in my world, I'm in, obviously a lot of times you'll be in a board and you're negotiating with somebody and you know somebody in the room isn't telling the truth. What is the benefit of not calling that out? 
Well, you know... Or is it a different world than the world you were in? Well, in my world, you, you, I mean, you can pay serious consequences. You can't be disrespectful in that life, Patrick. You know, two made guys, two guys that actually took the oath, you can never disrespect one another. Never. I mean, you know... Two they were, made guys could never disrespect never one another? Never disrespect. So no. what does disrespect mean? Calling a guy a name, calling him a liar, raising your voice to him. Really? Yeah. A made guy cannot do a made guy? No. That's, that's a major... Because the life allegedly is built on respect. So you can never disrespect anybody. You can never outwardly wow. do it. Like, I'll be honest with you, I had a, uh, I had a meeting with another made guy once, and he's trying to get involved in the gas business, and I'm trying to keep him out. He was a guy from my own family, but he was trying to make a deal with Gotti to bring them into the business, and I didn't want him. So I said, can I talk to you a minute? And this guy's doing life in prison right now. So we go in the other room, and we get in the other room. I called him every name in the sun. You're a liar, you're this, you're that. You're when we walk out, we're shaking hands, you're the best guy in the world. But I wouldn't let anybody see it, because now if he told anybody I called him that, I'd call him a liar. So they had to believe me, you know what I mean? The same way they had to believe him. Got so it. he would never try to challenge that. But no, in that life, you can never be disrespectful to one another. No matter what it is, you had to just bite your, your, your tongue and, and try to outsmart the guy. You know, one thing I learned, Patrick, in a meeting, and you know this, you're, you're the master of this, there's sometimes you could be in a meeting, and you could be the smartest guy in the room, and you don't want to let anybody know that. Let everybody talk, let everybody think they're smarter than you, but you really know what's going on. There's other times when you're in the room, you could be the least smartest guy in the room, but you got to make them think that you're smarter than them. And if you can master that technique, then you can get just about anything you want in any negotiation. I found out to be true. How do you size that up? Like, what, what, what things do you look for? Is it similar to like a game of poker where you know the guy's tilting, he's frustrated, after he loses, he goes all in. Are you looking for signs to kind of read everybody or have you done your due diligence before meeting? How does that take place? When I'm able to, I do my due diligence. I want to know the personality, the character of the people I'm, I'm in with. But there's times when I'll test somebody, I'll throw out a word or two that I know is false, and I'll see how he responds. If he wants to make me think I know what I'm talking about, I'll say something that has nothing to do with anything or is totally absurd, and we'll see how they answer. And sometimes they'll try to, they'll give you an answer, and you can start to, you know, they'll indicate to you what kind of personality they are and really what you have. The main thing is just let people talk first. Try to get as much out of them as you possibly can, and then you can kind of figure it out. Like with Gotti, a couple of times I had to sit down with him, I knew that he could never believe that I was winning. So in the midst of the argument, I had to figure out what he really wanted and how I can get what I want, letting him think that he got what he wanted. I, mean, I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but you know, it's, it, it's all about how you, you, you carry yourself. It really is. But you gotta be prepared. So, so again, like I'm thinking about for ourselves versus yours. Did you, did your world, Michael, did everybody pretty much know everybody's character? Like, was it like, hey, Tony, I'm about to go sit with Vinny. Tell me a little bit about Vinny. Or did you already know who Vinny was or who, you know, Johnny was? Because maybe in our world, like if we go into a meeting and we don't know somebody, you know, outside of that, like if you're saying, you know, you're the smartest, you're not the smartest, you know, make yourself the opposite or whatever you are. Was there other methods you used to be able to read people in the room? Is there any other thing you did or to look for? I'll give you another, another story. I got stories for everything yeah, I that know. I learned, you know. I had a big automobile dealership, and I had an office that was on the second floor. It was overlooking the car lot, a big Chevrolet dealer. One of the guys who worked for me was out 
uh, one day in the lot, and I see him having an argument with somebody, yelling back and forth, arguing, arguing, arguing. I don't pay attention. I go sit at my desk. A few minutes later, he comes upstairs. His name was Jerry. I said, Jerry, what's that argument about? He said, some guy says we sold him a lemon. He wanted his money back, and he's going back and forth. He, you know, he called me a name. I called him a name. He says, and then he mentioned that he had a connected uncle, a brother-in-law, I'm sorry, a connected brother-in-law. I said, well, what do you mean connected? He said, ah, he, he didn't have anybody connected. He was just mounting off. He said the guy's name was Mario. He says, so I told him, go F Mario and F you. And I said, Jerry, I told you don't talk like that. This is New York. You never know who somebody is. He didn't know anybody. I said, well, you know somebody, right? Don't talk like that. No, don't worry about it. He don't know anybody. Okay. Next day, I get a call. Another made guy, a guy by the name of Tony. Tony the Gawk, we call him. He's a big guy. And he says, uh, Mike, I got to see you. Please come into Brooklyn. So I just happened to say, Jerry, I don't feel like driving. I got to go into Brooklyn. Go on Long Island. Drive me. So we go into Brooklyn. We had a meet at a place called, uh, it, was the, it was on 18th Avenue, it was called the 19th Hole. There was a Chinese restaurant next to it. So we go in the back of the Chinese restaurant. Now here's what happened, the guy that I had to meet was another made guy, but I never met him as a made guy. So if you're a made member of another family, I can't just go up to you and say, hey, I'm Michael Francis, I'm made with the Columbos, you're so-and-so, you're made with the Bananos. We had to have somebody that knew us both introduce us. Got it. Right? Michael, Amiga Nostra, so-and-so, and then we can talk as made guys. So Tony was that guy. So we go in the back of the room, and there's a big old-time guy, big guy there, and he's got two guys with him. And uh, Tony says, Michael, Amiga Nostra, meaning a friend of ours, Mario. I said, Mario, that sounds familiar, right? So I sit down, I'm a young guy, he's an older guy, and he says, Mario, what could I do for you? He says, you got a guy by the name of Jerry Zimmerman with you? I said, yeah, I know Jerry. He pounds his hand on a table. He says, I want him dead. I said, oh. I said, now I'm putting it together, Mario, the scene. So now I'm thinking, I said, okay, Mario, do me a favor. I got to go to the restroom. I had a long drive in from Long Island. Because here's the deal. If they knew Jerry was out there, and they bring Jerry to sit down, before I could prepare him, and he says something wrong, I can't save him. Because... I'm a made guy, he is a made guy, and we always have the right of way. So even if it was somebody under me, if he would have said something wrong, he's in trouble, in bad trouble. What, what, what can, can you do anything to change that or no? No. Not if he, was, if he said the wrong thing and he was disrespectful in any way or he answered wrong, I can't help him. That's just the way it goes. So I said, Mario, I got to go to the restroom. So I go outside, Jerry's by the bar. I said, Jerry. Mario's in there and he's not happy. I said, get out of here. Go up the street to the diner. Wait for me, right? So he goes up to the street to the diner. Now I'm relaxed. I go back in. I says, Mario, what could I do for you? And he said, you know, this guy was very disrespectful. To, this is my brother-in-law and so on and so forth. And uh, he says, you know, he, he said, F me and all this kind of stuff. And I said, Mario, I got to understand. I'm, I'm got to lie here. I said, Mario, your brother-in-law is not telling you the truth. I says, I was sitting by the window. I heard the whole thing. I said, Jerry never said that. Your brother-in-law is lying. How could you? I know my brother-in-law 20 years. He says, well, I know Jerry 20 years. You know, we're going back and forth, and he says, well, I want to kill Jerry Zimmerman. I said, well, then i got to kill your brother-in-law. So what are we going to accomplish here? You know, this is how it's... This is literally how this is going. This is literally. I mean, you would have thought we would have, it was a nuclear explosion. This was, this was over. He said, well, I'm going to put him in a hospital. I said, well, i got to put your brother-in-law in a hospital. So what are we going to do? We're going to go back and forth with this thing, right? I'm telling you, Patrick, this went on for three hours because he was an old-timer. He wouldn't budge, not budge an inch, right? Now I'm saying, man, this is going to go all the way up to the boss. I said, we're going to have a whole production here. I said, Mario, tell me what you want. 
what do you want out of this? I said, no, don't even tell me. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give your brother-in-law a new car. Tell him you won the argument, you won. I'll give him a new car and I'll take care of Jerry. Well, I want Jerry in the hospital. I said, stop the hospital. So I'll take care of Jerry. He's my guy. Take the new car. Tell your brother-in-law you won. You know, whatever it is. You got it made. That's how I finally resolved it, right? But listen to this. I go out and I'm yelling at Jerry and everything. And I said, Jerry, I don't trust this guy. I don't trust him. As you happen to be walking down the street and a safe falls on your head, I can't do it. So here's what I'm going to do. He said, what? As you got a brother out in California, I says, go out to California for a while, go relax out there. When I think everything's all right, I'll call you back. So, and you gotta understand, Mario resented me because I'm 30 years younger than him. I'm a new guy, so got he it. already don't like yeah. me for that reason alone. So Jerry goes out, and uh, about two months later, he calls me up, he says, uh, hey chief, he says, uh, we're gonna be in the movie business. I said, what do you know about movies? Ah, don't worry, it's easy. We got a script and all this kind of stuff. Don't worry about it. He says, send me 83000 you'll be my partner. I said, all right. So I sent him $83,000, and we produced this movie called Mausoleum, which was a horror movie, right? P.S., the end result is, a million dollars later, we produced this movie, a horror movie, that didn't scare anybody but me, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but, but, but that's how I backed into the movie business. And then from there, I realized right away, I'll tell you what it is. You remember Golan and Globus? Anybody remember that name? Peter Goober would have, would have told you all about them. They were two guys, uh, they had a company, and they were doing all of these, um, you know, kind of exploitation films. So I spent a million dollars on this film, so I go and see them. They had offices in New York. I said, hey, I got this film, we spent a million dollars. And he said, okay. He said, we'll give you 25 grand. I said, I don't think you heard me. I said, I said, I spent a million dollars on this. He said, no, we'll give you 25 grand. That was it. So. I said, no, thank you. So I take the film, but that's when I realized you had to be in the distribution business. So I bought a distribution company at that point, and that's how I started to get involved in the film business way back when. On, a, on an accident, on a mistake, because I didn't pay attention. I just sent them the money. I didn't look into anything. I didn't research anything. I just trusted Jerry, and, you know, uh, I almost got destroyed on that film. Did it end up being profitable? It ended up being Jerry? profitable, yeah. So saving Jerry's life made you money? Yes. A lot of headaches, but it made me money, yes. It was worth saving his life. Michael, Michael let me ask you this. You know, uh, um, running a business, a lot of people who run a business here, you wonder who's support, who is sales, who's operations, who's this, who's that. In your world, you would tell me you guys got soldiers, you guys got earners, right? What is the difference between a personality of a soldier and an earner, and did you ever have a situation where a Soldier also was a great earner, but was there a quality for each? We had about, uh, at that time, we had about 115 made guys, guys that actually took the oath. Out of the 115, Patrick, 20 of us were earning. That's it, 20 of us. The other 95 uh, who had a, you know, a gambling problem, we gave him a union job. We tried to do our best to support him, them, but then they did a lot of the, you know, the heavy work, the street work. Because, you know, it's like anything else, you want to protect the golden goose. So the guys that are bringing in the money, you try not to jeopardize them. And the other guys that are just capitalizing on being part of that life, we made them do the work, you know, most of the time. That's was it, was there a personality difference or no? Like, was there, was there a trend amongst the 95 soldiers that they were not business savvy, they were not communicators, they were not leaders, maybe they were tougher guys? Maybe they were not. What was the difference between the two? Yeah, I mean, you could tell almost immediately. You know, you talk to a guy a few minutes, you know if he's got a head for business or not. And then, uh, you know, some of those guys, they're just uh, thrilled to be part of the life. 
and they want to do whatever they got to do, but they don't know how to earn. I mean, they really don't. You got to give them a job. You got to support them. Look, in that life, we were all Shylock and money. You know what Shylock means, lending it out in usurious rates. Every one of us were in that business. So what I did with the guys around me that really couldn't earn on their own, I would give them money in turn to put out on the street. So we'd earn a couple of points a week. I'd give it to them. And then, you know, that's how you made guys earn back then. It was a little, little easier, you know, because you had that kind of thing going. And, you know, back then in the 80s, uh, bank money wasn't easy to come by. So we had plenty of customers that wanted money Got all it. the time. I lent a lot of business people money back then. And you, you were making what, two and a half to five points? But what's yeah, the it would go from two and a half to five points, you know. And then sometimes if you, you know, I'll be honest with you, if you wanted to take the business over, you, you know, you give the guy, you make it a little harder for him to pay every week. So he pay five, six, seven points. But, you know, it's easy. You come to me at 12 o'clock, you got the money at two. There's no application or nothing, you know, and you go about your business. But... Um, it was big business at the time. Michael, a lot of the names that we know, you know, the Gotti, the, uh, your father, who's legendary at what he did uh, within that world, and Persico, Paul Castellano, all these guys, the, the names that we've seen all across Hollywood. Who were some of the names that were earners that we don't hear the names? Like guys who you would say, that guy was legit, this guy was real at what he was doing, but it's not commercialized like some right. of the other names. Castellano was legit. He was a big earner. He had a good head for business. He was, uh, you know, he had a lot of legitimate things going. And then if you're a boss, people are sending you money all the time, you know. Patrick, when I went into the gas business, um, I'll tell you how it happened. You know, I backed into that too. You know, a lot of people have the impression that mob guys sit in their social clubs. And this is important for you to know. They sit in their social clubs and they target businesses. They say, we're going to go after this, going to go after that. It doesn't happen that way 90% of the time. It's somebody within the business that has some kind of scheme to make a little extra money and they'll come to us and present it to us because they figure if they need financing, we can give it to them. If they need, uh, you know, some muscle, we can give it to them and we're never going to tell on them. So they come to us. That happened to me so often. People that wanted to make a few extra bucks, they'd come to me and that's how I'd get involved. That's how I got involved in the gas business. So, you know, um, they were really legitimate guys. Persico, for instance, he was a pretty good earner. When I found out what I had with the gas business, I went to him and I said, Junior, here's the deal. I'm going to show you more money than you ever saw in your life. But, and he right away said, no drugs. We don't get involved in drugs. Because we didn't get involved. In, we got involved in drugs. We got killed. We weren't allowed. Big fallacy out there that the mob was pushing drugs back then. Not true. Some guys were doing it on a sneak, but as a business, we didn't get involved. So I said, Junior, it's not drugs. He said, what is it? I said, it's gas. What do you mean? I said, well, it's a tax thing that I, was, that I created. I said, but here's the deal. Everybody's going to want to get involved in this. From all five families, they're all going to want to get involved. As soon as you open that door, we're going to get in trouble. I said, it's going to be the same thing that happens all the time. I said, you got to make me win every argument. You can't play politics. Don't sell me out. I told him just like that. As you do that, you make me win every time because I'll be right and I'm going to show you more money than you ever had. Let me see. At one point in time, after probably six months, I was bringing them in almost $2 million a week. Now, in that life, $2 million a week buys you a lot of loyalty, trust me. I never lost an argument in the gas business. Never lost. And I went against Gotti, I went against Castellano, I went against everybody that wanted a piece. So, you know. Does that apply to the real world? Look, when people are making money with you, they're happy. 
I mean, that's the way it is. You know, they're happy. I mean, money buys a lot of loyalty in business. You know, people don't want to disrupt that. And it's true on the street. And I think it's true in real life, too. I've seen that. You know that. Powerful. That's very true. So when you make money, your partners, vendors, everybody's happy. You continue doing business. And they, they do additional things for you. you. You had a lot of issues, I mean, within your career, whether it's government or lawyers or any of that stuff. How do you yourself see the court system that we have and outside of the court system, you know, today, like in a marketplace of being an entrepreneur, building a business, what do you think are some things business people need to look out for that has to do with lawyers, that has to do with the government and regulation? You got me going on the wrong subject there, but you know, listen, you know, and I wrote this in my book. Look, I made a lot of money illegally, a lot of money. You know, I had, I had this gasoline tax fraud case, I mean, deal that at one point in time, we were pulling in seven, eight million dollars a week. Okay, a lot of it cash, a lot of it I had to devise a system to send money through wires overseas to various bank accounts. We did different things to try to hide the money that we were earning. When I finally got in trouble, when the government came on me with these racketeering laws that are devastating, you don't ever want to get involved in a RICO, very, very hard to defend, and it'll cost you millions of dollars, even if you're innocent, it doesn't matter. Just defend these cases, they're very difficult. And, you know, in, in all my cases, like Giuliani indicts me on a case, I had a million dollar bail, I paid my lawyers almost three million dollars, I spent seven months in a courtroom every single day on trial, it took me a year and a half to pre- prepare. I was found not guilty, but it cost me $20 million. Wow. $20 million to be found not guilty. Yeah. So at the end of the day, all right, I didn't go to jail, but look at the devastation it right. causes. How many people can handle that, you know, and pay those kind of, that kind of money? Me, I don't like a lawyer unless I absolutely... Def- I hope there's no lawyers in here, no offense. Man, there are a few, but... but uh, unless, unless I absolutely need them, I try to avoid them. That's, and I've, I've been through lawyers my whole life. But I, I tell you this, you know, you cut corners legally, that's fine. But it absolutely doesn't pay to do anything that's going to bring you heat with the government or the IRS. It took me, literally, when I got out of prison, I had a $103 million fine... Uh, from the IRS. $103 million. I'll tell you how. My partner in the gas business became an informant and he started to testify in all the gasoline trials, right? There was probably seven or eight of them. Every time a witness got on the stand and said, oh, I gave Francis five million, I gave Francis six million. Next thing I know, I get a letter from the IRS. They, char- they uh, assessed me that t- when the guy was ta- saying it from the witness stand, even if the guy got uh, the case was acquitted, they still assessed me with it. And then they used to say, if you want to pay by credit card or whatever, so I used to write my credit card and say, here, pay it, right? I used to get these notes in prison. So I get out, I got a $103 million fine from the IRS. Now, how do you get by on that? I'll give you a little secret. Nice. I used to go to try to buy a car, and they said to me, are you kidding me? You got a $103 million fine. I said, yeah, but let me tell you the flip side of that. If I owe the government $103 million, you must know I'm a pretty good earner, so give me the car. They said, okay, you got it. <laughs> I swear to God. I said, what are you worried about the credit report? I owe him 103. You know I can make money. Okay, they gave me the credit. You got to be kidding me. I swear to God. (laughs) Same way I bought a house that way one time at the bank. I said, don't worry about that. I'm going to pay. And when you're on the street, you learn some of that dialogue. But anyway, so every year I'm going to court in Brooklyn on this 103 million. I said, look, if you claim there's money someplace, go and get it. They wrote a book, said I got money buried all over the world, and they're investigating me like crazy, and they're making me sign statements. I don't have money in foreign banks. 
Every year I'm going back, every year I'm going back. 20 years. I finally get in front of the judge. I got mad with my lawyer. I said, you're not solving anything for me here. They keep coming. I'm not paying them. So I told the judge, you know, I live in California. I said, why are you making me come here all the time? I'm saying the same thing. I live in California. Change the venue. He was so tired of the case. He said, I got it. It's a good idea. I'm sending it out to California, right? So he sent it out to California. <laughs> it's funny. About three months later, I get a call from the, the agent. He's coming. I got to see it. So I walk in. He looks at me. He said, I got to ask you a question. He's got about 20 file boxes in the back of you. He says, what is all of this? I said, well, didn't you, you, people tell you what this is? He says, all they do is send me boxes and say you owe 103 million. I said, I've been fighting the case for 20 years. We're going to fight it for another 20 years, unless you make a deal and settle with me now. He's okay. He says, 103 million. He's, how about we settle for 10 million? I said, I don't think you're hearing me. I don't have any money. We're not going to settle for anything. Bottom line is, we're back and forth. I settled it for $250,000. <laughs> yes. No way, you got to hear the best. So he says, you're going to write me a check. I'll give you 30 days. I said, you didn't hear me. I don't have any money. I said, you got to stretch this out over five years. I'll pay you every month, right? He stretched it out over five years. you got to be kidding me. I swear to God. So I said, unless you want to keep investigating. He just wanted to get rid of me, too. He said, let's just settle this thing. 103 down to 250, five-year payout. That was it. We got a couple construction company guys here <laughs> that are very good at shoveling and uh, digging for money. Are there any hidden spots you want to advise them going digging for some money? Well, here's what they tell you. Okay, here's how the IRS gets you. The statute of limitations is, is over on any money that I might have stolen back in the 80s, right? But here's how they get you. They make you sign a statement under the penalty of perjury that you have no money in farm banks, you got no money here. They go down a laundry list, like you got no money in your bathroom, in your closet, in a shoebox. They go through the whole thing. And there's a 10-year statute of limitations on the perjury, you know. Um, so they don't get you for the money, they get you for the perjury, right? So uh, I was talking to a few people today at lunch, but today or yesterday, I remember at lunch. And uh, the last statement I signed, I have 19 months to go before I have to sign another one. So now I was talking to my lawyer. I said, look, if I refuse to sign another one, what are they going to do? He said, well, probably when you have a year left, they're going to tell you to come in and sign another one. I said, well, if I say no, what are they going to do? I said, let's take them to court. Let's argue with them a little bit. I said, because if we get a lapse of time and there is any money there, and I'm not saying there is, but just in case there is, you know, I don't know who's in this audience, but just in case there is. We're just looking for cross streets. Then maybe, That's all we want. Maybe that lapse of time, I can go grab a few bucks if there's anything there until I sign another one. But then it's too late for that. Who knows? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick David, And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.